beneath the 56-ish native trees of the British Isles. Hello all, David Oakes here. Welcome back to Trees A Crowd. Right. It has been a little while since we've had a proper Mediterranean myth, so this week I am delving into my non-native archive to tell you a little story. A story that starts the same as seemingly every single Roman legend ever has. Once upon a time, Jupiter was feeling a little horny. See what I mean? But this week the object of his eye wasn't Juno, or Ganymede, or Io, or Danae, or Semele, or you get the idea. No, this week Jupiter was after a virginal young nymph named Nea. Now Jupiter wooed Nea as best he could, but to say that the beautiful nymph shunned his advances doesn't quite represent her actions fully. No. Rather than surrender her chastity to the big shiny jock in the sky, Nea chose to take her own life. To prove that he wasn't at all put out, Jupiter did what any god who suffers rejection at the hands of a water nymph would. He created a tree in honour of her. The fruit of this tree was to be one of the tastiest in existence. A fruit that, when boiled in sugar, produces the luxurious maron glacé. A fruit that was given to empire-forging Roman soldiers as a porridge before heading off into battle. A fruit that, when roasted upon an open fire, makes mid-century crooners fetishistically festive for Christmas. But this magnificent fruit, in a somewhat patronising sign of respect for Nea's actions, was to be protected by some of the sharpest spines in nature. For Jupiter's dendro manspreading wasn't over. He was basically saying, if I can't have her, no one can. Not even the squirrels. Anyway, this tree was consecrated in honour of chaste Nea, or Casta Nea in the original Latin, and the name stuck. But here at Trees A Crowd HQ, we prefer to label our trees by numbers, for this week's tree is tree number 38. Sweet chestnut. The sweet Chestnut, Castanea sativa. Or at least that's the story that a Renaissance poet made up. It's not true, not even in myth terms, it's yet more fantastical whimsy, but it's certainly a lovely story to start the episode with. In reality, however, the name Castanea comes from an ancient Greek etymology. They loved the sweet chestnut and called it Castano with a K. With the poet Ermippos in 440 BC christening the tree the Nut of Zeus. And the name Castano came about for both the tree and Zeus's famous nuts were native to Castanea in Pontus. Or was it Castonus in Thessaly? Actually, none of that is necessarily true either. It is far more likely that those ancient Greek townships took their name from the sweet chestnut rather than the chestnut from the town. So, although the chestnut was heavily cultivated by the Greeks in both of those towns, and for the record the tree's specific epithet, sativa, means cultivated, the sweet chestnut and their name seems to come from further afield. So where did the tree come from? Although the sweet chestnut is almost certainly native to parts of the Mediterranean, to Italy and to Greece, it is also native to Asia Minor, to Turkey and Armenia, etc. And it is far more likely that the name that the Greeks and then the Romans adopted for the tree is borrowed from one of these languages. For example, the Armenian for chestnut tree is Kaskani, and for nut it is simply Kask, neither of which are a million miles away from the Greek Castano or the Roman Castanea. 
And through this discussion of the flimsier fables behind edible etymology, I trust regular listeners to this series will have inferred by now that the warmth-demanding sweet chestnut is not a native to the British Isles. It is an archaeophyte and is generally believed to have been introduced to our shores by the Romans in the 5th century at the very end of their rule in Britain. A parting gift, if you will. But again, that said, this may not be entirely accurate either, for there has been very little convincing paleontological evidence to accompany these Roman archaeological finds. But the earliest, bona fide, 100% reliable record of British sweet chestnuts is from 1113 AD and references a boundary marker tree for Goldcliffe Priory in South East Wales. For the record, paleontological literally means the study of dust, but it is the schmancy word that botanists and archaeologists use for studying plant pollen and other small biological particulates. So now, should you be fortunate enough to hire a cleaner, you can alienate yourself yet further from them with casual phrases such as, having conducted a paleontological study of the upper bookshelves, I'm afraid this household is no longer in need of your services. Also, if the mood took you, you could specialise and become a melissopalaenologist, someone who studies honey to determine which plant's pollen the bees have been playing with, which is awesome and would mean you could then use phrases such as having conducted a melissopalaenological study of your manuka honey, I'm afraid I'm going to have to report your bees to the National Food Crime Unit at the Food Standards Agency. And whilst we're on bees, honey made from the sweet chestnut is dark, almost opaque, and possesses a complex aroma of malt and tannins that apparently give way to a taste alive with the sweetest of caramels, the bitterest of raw cocos, and the most resinous overtones of the piniest pine sap. Yummy. And here ends my audition for MasterChef. On the British Isles, especially in the well-drained acidic soils of southeast England, where the summers are the warmest, the sweet chestnut can be found growing fairly well. They can reach a mighty height of some 35 metres, and trunks of mature sweet chestnuts are instantly recognisable. They are fissured vertically and are markedly twisted. They look like a giant has grasped the tree at both the top and the bottom and given it a Chinese burn. But in the interest of using a more politically correct phrase, and indeed one with a botanical bent, in a number of European countries, Chinese burns are given the name stinging nettles or burning nettles, a far more charming alternative name for this harmless schoolboy lark of bullying, torture and sadism. Sweet chestnuts are manicious possessing both sets of reproductive organs and have long, delicate yellow catkins with only a few female flowers hidden away at the base. It is these that become the chestnuts. The catkins are more plentifully smattered with male flowers, which provide bees with valuable nectar as well as pollen. See honey above. And this is particularly intriguing. For unlike our native members of the Phagaceae, the oaks and the beech, these catkins show us that the sweet chestnut is insect-pollinated. Whilst other Phagaceae members relied upon wind pollination to help it explore the cooler, windswept lands beyond the tropics, the sweet chestnut, it seemed, never needed slash wanted to achieve this and simply hung out on the Costa del Sol and waited for invertebrate tourists to flock to it. 
Also, as a relatively new arrival to our shores, it should come as no surprise to hear that the sweet chestnut has not had the time to build up the same immense wealth of associations with other living organisms as have the oaks or the beech. Now, whilst some of us have used this period of quarantine and lockdown to create a podcast all about the secrets and stories beneath our 56-ish native trees, Zeke Marshall over at the University of Leeds is using his time to work out what exactly each of these native tree species interact with, which species of native lichen, fungus, bryophyte, bird, mammal, invertebrate, etc. Unfortunately, he sees limited scientific merit in the incorporation of Greek gods or Elizabethan herbalists in his spreadsheet, but I will keep pushing him. Zeke is collating work from a number of sources, including pre-existing data from the likes of the Global Biotic Interactions database, and then cross-referencing them with the records of more precise surveys conducted by the likes of the British Mycological or the British Lichen Societies to create a more complete picture of the organism's diversity at play upon and within our nation's native trees. Even the most fleeting scan of Zeke's labours show that when compared to the oak and beech, the sweet chestnut is not a typical member of the Fagaceae. It has been recorded as interacting with fewer than half as many lichens, a third as few fungi, and to really put things in perspective, the best available data shows us that whereas the pedunculate oak has been recorded as interacting with a massive 1,222 invertebrates, the similar-sized sweet chestnut merely interacts with 237. Which is not to say that those species that do occur there do not thrive in healthy numbers. The insects that eat the leaves in turn provide food for a good diversity of bird life. But, in Fagaceae terms, its value for diversity of wildlife is embarrassingly low. Or perhaps, more fairly, it simply has a lot of catching up to do. All that said, sweet chestnuts, back where they do come from, are spectacularly good at harbouring much, much larger organisms. The soil on the slopes of Mount Etna, Europe's largest active volcano, is unsurprisingly exceptionally fertile, making it perfect for orchards, vineyards, crop fields and the largest known sweet chestnut in the world. When measured in 1780, the tree had a girth of 57.9 metres or 190 feet and entered the Guinness World Records as the planet's most girthful arbour. This tree is known locally as the Castagnu di Centu Cavari, the Hundred Horse Chestnut. For, at some point in human history, during a particularly heavy storm, it successfully sheltered 100 knights with their 100 horses and a queen called Joanna, presumably also with her entourage. She was a queen after all. Now, the legend doesn't state whether this Queen Joanna was the 16th century Joanna I of Aragon, also known as Joanna the Mad or Juana la Loca, or the 14th century Joanna I of Anjou. It seems legends don't quibble over precise time frames or the dramatis personae. Also, in a work from 1636, Il Mongibello by Pietro Carrera, it is stated that merely 30 horses could fit inside the 100-horse tree. So the myth obviously hasn't been nailed down by that stage either. The truth is, if you're going to lie, get your facts straight first. But what we do know is that the tree still stands. It is somewhere between two and four thousand years old. And at one stage, when the tree split into four distinct parts, it had a building built within the tree trunk to store each season's harvest of chestnuts. And so on to the chestnuts. 
After about 25 years of growth, when a sweet chestnut tree has reached maturity, it will offer forth brilliant reddish-brown and delightfully glossy fruits. They are found clustered together, frustratingly protected by four wickedly spine-covered bracts, and are harvested with enthusiasm by squirrels, by Nat King Cole, but not by Jupiter. The sweet chestnut is high in protein, relatively low in fat, higher in starch than a potato, and oddly the only nut to provide a good source of vitamin C. But ignore me at your peril, these are not to be mistaken for the larger inedible conker of the unrelated horse chestnut. Do not eat conkers, unless you're a wild boar. But it's not just the sweet chestnuts, sweet chestnuts that are tasty. Who wrote this? Come springtime, the tree's leaves provide sustenance too, making a fine cough-relieving tea, and can even be used to wrap maturing cheeses within. But be wary, for like the tree's nuts, the leaves appear equally aggressive. The tree's simple glossy leaves are large, between fifteen to thirty centimeters long and five to ten centimeters wide. But they have a dynamically serrated edge, with each leaf tooth tip spiking out in line with the leaf's lateral veins. Right to conclude, having told perhaps one too many factually dubious fables, let's end with one indisputable but nutty moment from history. On the thirtieth of October, fifteen o one. A banquet was held in Rome, a meal that has gone down with infamy and has become known as the banquet of chestnuts. Organized by the former cardinal Cesare Borgia and held in the papal palaces, the guest list included most of the cardinals of Rome. A recent plentiful harvest of sweet chestnuts, which, for the record, usually happens from mid-September through to November, so the dates match perfectly, and fifty honest courtesans. The honest there is a direct quote from the evening's MC, the protonotary apostolic Johann Burkhard, and he kept a diary. Johann said, "After dinner, the candelabra with the burning candles were taken from the tables and placed on the floor. Chestnuts were strewn all around, which the naked courtesans picked up, creeping on hands and knees between the chandeliers, while the Pope Cesare and his sister Lucrezia looked on." The implication here being that the Pope and Cesare witnessed the prostitutes picking the chestnuts up, but not with their hands. They were picking the chestnuts up with their. All right, thank you, David. Thanks, thanks. I'll take over no, from here. Uh... I'll have you know that despite what you may have seen in a certain televisual dramatic reconstruction of that night, that your account of the banquet of chestnuts is spurious at best and risible at worst. Yes, Burkhard's diary exists, but there's no proof that he was even actually there, and we only have a second-hand account of these diaries of his. And even in that, his description of that night uses language that is completely unlike anything else in the rest of his entire and extensive journals. On top of that, most of this nonsense was exacerbated by the writings of a 20th-century historian called William Manchester, who just. Took Burkhard's diaries and apparently ran with it, writing such imaginative reconstructions as servants kept score of each man's orgasms, for the Pope greatly admired virility and measured a man's machismo by his ejaculative capacity, and that after every one was exhausted, His Holiness distributed prizes. Yeah, and 
David, please bear in mind that Manchester also wrote a book on the assassination of JFK, after which Jackie Kennedy successfully sued him and got him to remove certain chapters. Cesare Borgia just never had such an opportunity. So, as far as I can see it, it is highly unlikely that the Banquet of Chestnuts took place as you described, if at all, and that Cesare Borgia is being maligned, foully slandered, and and was actually, not, not to put too fine a point on it, a bloody good bloke. Thank you. Thank you, Francois. So, there you have it. Yet another questionable chestnut tale to end this week's episode on. But as some of you may well know, that was Francois Arnaud who played Cesare Borgia in the TV show The Borgias. So I wouldn't necessarily trust everything you just heard. And so that's that. 15 minutes of mostly nonsense about a tree that isn't even native. We head off into a new and exciting family of trees next week, so keep your eyes and ears peeled for the alder. And I look forward to speaking to you all then. Thank you again for listening. Goodbye for now. Bye-bye. Uploading the secrets and stories beneath the 56-ish native trees of the bridge.